BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Katie Orr. California has paused the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine following a recommendation from federal health officials after six patients experienced extremely rare blood clot complications. Meanwhile, California plans to expand vaccine eligibility to everyone 16 and older on Thursday. So far, roughly 40 percent of Californians have received their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, and more than one in five are fully vaccinated. But experts say the state has a ways to go. We'll get the latest on the J&J vaccine and talk about what we can expect as the state prepares to open up eligibility. That's coming up next after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr, in for Mina Kim. Today, a CDC advisory committee plans to meet to make a recommendation on the current pause of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. The committee will likely advise on a protocol for how to continue using the vaccine and better manage risks. Still, the pause, announced yesterday, muddled an already complicated vaccine rollout in the United States, where supplies have been limited in some areas. And tomorrow, California will officially expand vaccine eligibility to anyone 16 and older. This hour, we'll talk about efforts to vaccinate millions more Californians, especially the most vulnerable, as well as how the Johnson & Johnson news is playing out. Joining me now is Damien Garday, national biotech reporter for Stat News, Carly Severn, senior engagement editor here at KQED News, and Dr. Jose Mayorga, the executive director of the University of California Irvine Health Family Health Centers and assistant clinical professor of family medicine with the UCI School of Medicine. Thank you so much to all of you for coming. And Damien, I want to start with you. First of all, can you just give us an update on the latest news about the J&J vaccine and what will happen at this advisory committee meeting today? Absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, this all kind of kicked off yesterday with the CDC and the FDA coming together to recommend that states pause administering the J&J vaccine as a reaction to six cases of a rare clotting disorder, one of which was fatal. And so that leads us to today where the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is a a group of outside experts to the CDC who regularly meet to, to give advice on, you know, if a new vaccine comes out, should it be given to pregnant women? Is it ideal for children, et cetera? They will be meeting to review the evidence, which appears to be fairly scant, 
um, about this rare side effect and, as you mentioned, issue a recommendation for what the United States, what states should do um, when they unpause this administration, which is to say they may say that it's better suited for older people who have a lower risk of this side effect. They may say that the benefits outweigh the risks for everyone and that you know this is just something to be vigilant about, but we won't know until they conclude that meeting later this afternoon. Yeah, I think it sounds initially to people pretty scary when the federal government and now we have the states um, saying we're not going to use this right now, We're even though they use the word pause. I mean, what do you think that that is going to do to the vaccine rollout in general and the effort to get everyone uh, a vaccine who wants it? That's the absolutely the big question from public health terms. I mean, it's important for people to keep in mind, this is six observed cases out of roughly 6.8 million people who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the United States. So that's roughly a one in a million side effect, but it, it is serious. And, and I think the, the reason health, public health authorities are taking it so seriously is that it kind of came out of nowhere and, and that's alarming. So there's kind of a push and pull, I think, in public health of, wanting to be transparent, wanting to make clear to the public that, you know, the powers that be are taking this seriously. And, and I think that's that was the thinking behind putting this on pause and, and having this meeting and doing it all publicly. But then there's the other side of not wanting to be alarmist, because as you mentioned, you know, the United States is deeply invested in convincing as many people as possible to um, take one of these vaccines. So you kind of have to strike a balance there. And I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree as to whether this pause was was hasty, um, but if and when, I should say when, um, it's unpaused, then the challenge becomes to rebuild that trust for people who might be skeptical of this vaccine um, in the future because of this, this rare safety concern. I think you know the next challenge for public health departments, for the nurses who administer the vaccine, for, for everyone involved in this will be having good answers to the many reasonable questions that people will have uh, in the weeks to come. Right. And I think one of the issues we've already seen, I shouldn't say issues, one of the challenges that officials have had with the J&J vaccine already is that among a certain segment of the population, it was already seen as sort of a quote unquote, you know, second class vaccine, I think, because of, you know, the efficacy, they say, is a bit lower, even though it still is, you know, very effective against preventing death and hospitalizations. But you saw, like, here in California, Governor Gavin Newsom very publicly got the J&J vaccine. So did um, Dr. Mark Galley, who's heading up the COVID response. Uh, So what do you think this does to, you know, how does this hurt the narrative that this shot was already struggling with, that it is a second tier shot, even though it's not? Yeah, that's going to be the, the added challenge of of messaging for public health organizations. And I think, you know, one of the risks is that the so the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is can be stored. It doesn't need to be frozen like the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, um, which makes it easier to ship and to distribute. Um, And it's also one shot. And so as a result, it has become a cornerstone of the vaccination campaign for people who might not be able to come into, you know, an academic medical center to get a vaccine or who might not have access to a CVS, for example. So in rural communities in the United States, a lot of people who are homebound because of disability, uh, some states have um, embarked upon programs where, you know, you can drive out to them, a nurse can drive out to them and give them the vaccine. And so I think the risk that, that, you know, you're you're underlining um, 
is that this vaccine will be perceived as a second class vaccine. And the other problem that creates is that in many cases, it's a vaccine that's available in rural communities, in some tribal communities across the country, and to people with disabilities. And so, you know, you really want to avoid the notion in public health that you know, there's a second class vaccine for quote unquote, second class citizens. So that's, you know, just an added challenge for, for authorities when it comes to messaging around this issue. Do we know uh, very much about what happened in these six cases? We know that it was, they occurred in women between 18 and, or, I'm sorry, 16 and 48. Um, is, do we know anything beyond that? Or is that pretty much it? Well, we, we know what the observed symptoms were, which is basically blood clotting with really low platelet counts. It's venous sinus thrombosis with low, low platelet count, excuse me, low platelet counts. And so with the, the case of the J&J vaccine, we don't know much more than that. In fact, it hasn't even been established that the vaccine, that getting the vaccine has a link to this rare side effect that we've seen. However, a similar issue happened with the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe and elsewhere, um, which because that has been going on for a while, there's been more study into it. And when people looked at the side effects um, as it occurred to the people who got the AstraZeneca vaccine, it appeared that the body was basically creating antibodies against um, a protein for, that, that helps blood to clot. And that's kind of confusing because the, the, or the uh, side effect is clotting, but basically through a complicated kind of immunosystem reaction, one that's similar to a reaction some people have to the blood thinner heparin, um, the body basically conspired to create a lot of blood clots to sap platelets and coagulate them and led to this dangerous side effect. So people have honed in on that. Scientists have honed in on, on that reaction, but it's still not clear what's happening between people getting the AstraZeneca vaccine and then, you know, very seldomly developing this side effect. It's not, we're not certain what the sort of like biological mechanism is by which this is taking place. Do you know uh, what should people who have received the J&J vaccine potentially be on the lookout for in in case, you know, they're afraid they might be having one of these reactions? What, uh, healthcare officials have said is that you know the, the primary symptom that you should be concerned with is a severe headache, um, and it could be. I, I think the Anthony Fauci said something between you know four days after vaccination to thirteen days after vaccination is sort of the time to be vigilant. Um, but I would I would defer to uh, to people's actual physicians and to Dr. Mayorga, who you know I'm not a doctor, but um, but that's at least what the communication has been from um, the CDC and FDA. In your experience, and again, knowing that you are are not a medical doctor, um, we we developed this vaccine so quickly. I mean, so many people were saying it's actually, you know, astonishing how fast we developed these vaccines and got them into the arms of people. Is it unusual, you think, to see some of these, you know, these cases like we've been seeing with J&J and AstraZeneca? Or is it actually just, you know, a little bit par for the course, given how fast we develop these things? I would say it's par for the course, and, and even absent the the pandemic and warp speed and, and the, the unprecedented speed at which we've done this, this happens all the time in medicine and especially in vaccines. You know, companies have to run very large clinical trials before their products can be distributed. In the case of Johnson & Johnson, I believe there were more than 40,000 people in their U.S. trial, which is a massive clinical trial. The thing is, though, the vaccine is going to be distributed to hundreds of millions of people. So you know, a clinical trial is designed to gather as much information as possible about the benefits and the risks of a given medicine. 
But if it's a one in a million side effect, as this one appears to be, well, you'd have to have a one million person clinical trial, which is just not practical. So with almost any medicine, there will be things that you learn about it, risks you didn't know about, potentially benefits you didn't know about that will only come to light when it's used in the real world, because they're just clinical trials have limitations. And I think this experience really underlines that. Dr. Uh, Mayorga, I'd like you to weigh in on this. Um, what is what is your take? Do you, you do you agree with Damien that when we are dealing with a vaccine rollout this quickly, we're inevitably going to have some unexpected side effects? Thanks for having me on. I, I think it's a really important point that he stressed, and I'll stress again. Here is a perfect example when we expand the the use of real real world of vaccination. We will come across those rare, rare conditions, and this is the this is the case. This is what we're seeing, and so uh, we don't expect to see this in clinical trials again because we're not enrolling over millions of people in these trials. Um, this is this is not unheard of in other vaccines or other medications. What's really important, and and for me when I'm explaining it to our patients and even to our staff, is everything has to be compared in context. There are other things that do cause blood clots. For example, as a family medicine physician, I see women of this age, I see women of reproductive age, and I prescribe them birth control pills. Those birth control pills carry a blood clot risk. They approximately carry one, approximately 1,200 out of every million. And so again, everything is in perspective. Uh, COVID itself, having an infection, could cause uh, 20% of the folks infected by COVID uh, can lead to blood clots. So again, everything in perspective, really important to, to understand that. Are you someone who's received the J&J vaccine? What are your questions and concerns about Tuesday's news? Or have you faced challenges making an appointment or ac- accessing a vaccine site? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout here on Forum this hour with Damien Garday, national biotech reporter for Stat News, Carly Severn, senior engagement editor with KQED News, and Dr. Jose Mayorga, executive director of the University of California, Irvine Health Family Health Centers. Dr. Mayorga, I want to just check back in with you on these side effects. If people feel like they are experiencing something related to the J&J vaccine, what should they be on the lookout for and what should they do uh, if, if they think they're having these side effects? Well, this, the CDC definitely put out recommendations that anyone who received the vaccine within the last three weeks who develops severe headache, abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath, 
should seek medical attention immediately. I think what this also allows us to do from a clinical side, I could now use this information and really make an overall assessment. Is this person having a significant issue due to the vaccine or is this another issue that, that's being presented? So really, again, kind of highlights for us as clinicians, as physicians, that we have to be a little bit more vigilant, but all this information, all this transparency to us really helps us mitigate and quickly act if this is truly a reaction due to the vaccine. We have a comment from Jonathan who asks, is there any linkage between hormone levels, menstrual cycles, and the incidence of blood clots in these people? Is there any discussion among the CDC and FDA to simply restrict the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for the moment to men? Uh, Dr. Mallorca, are you hearing any discussion like that? Well, keep in mind, there's still much to learn and study about all this information. Something that just came out over the last uh, day. Um, And so, more is to come. Uh, Many of us are, from a physician and scientific standpoint, are looking at that very closely. Obviously, these have all been uh, cases amongst uh, women, but we do have to keep in mind, maybe there are other risk factors associated, such as hormones, or maybe even these individuals that receive them were on other medications that made them more susceptible to clotting. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, for example, there are other things that that raises the level of clot risk, such as birth control pills, even smoking um, as well. So, so everything will continue to evolve as, as we find out more. What would you tell women who might be hesitant to get this shot now, um, especially women, like you said, who are in their like prime childbearing ages or, or, or perhaps are even pregnant? You know, that's a really important point, uh, question that I'm hearing a lot from our patients, even before this incident, and even my own family members uh, had young uh, cousins of mine who've asked me about this. Uh, and so first and foremost, the vaccines in general are really safe and very effective. At this stage, we have uh, Moderna and Pfizer that have really been circulating the mostly here in the United States and being administered. And so those are becoming really effective, very, very useful. So I would encourage folks to, if at this point they cannot register for the J&J vaccine, to seek those instead. Um, We have to keep everything in context, right? Because if someone does get infected by COVID, we don't know how that will impact you. I really don't. Uh, We have young people who have passed away or have had severe complications and ongoing long-term complications from COVID are still being uh, studied and evaluated. So it's best to to think through it, discuss it with your doctors um, and make the decision. As it pertains to to the question, I believe, around those being pregnant, again, pregnancy itself carries a risk of of, uh, complications due to COVID. So there's a lot of recommendations here at UCI Health our, our specialists in OBGYN definitely re- are recommending it to our pregnant patients. I, as a family physician, am recommending it to the to pregnant patients as well. Uh, so it's really important to, to weigh the risk benefits and understand where in your pregnancy you are as you're making that decision. 
Victoria tweets, as someone who got the J&J vaccine, I am glad officials have taken a pause. If I had found out they had hidden the clotting issue, I would have lost the trust I'm slowly rebuilding in the CDC. After AstraZeneca, it's not a surprise. Also, the likelihood seems minute. Uh, What do you think? Let us know. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to bring in uh, Carly Severn now, the senior engagement editor at KQED News. Carly, you have been tracking how people can go ahead and, you know, get a, get appointments in California. Um, tomorrow, of course, the state is opening up vaccine eligibility to anyone 16 and older. Um, How do you think that is going to impact the ability of people in California to get a vaccine appointment? So I think that a lot of folks are asking us already, how does this J&J news affect their chances of getting their appointment? Now, here in the Bay Area, we're obviously focused um, on what those nine counties are doing, and all of those counties are momentarily halting the use of that vaccine. Um, But I do want to say that... um, Governor Gavin Newsom did say that less than 4% of California's vaccine allocation this week is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So I think that's a really important point to keep this in context. And the mass vaccination sites, for example, the Oakland Coliseum one, um, that location isn't actually using Johnson & Johnson anymore. So I do just want to put that in context. But all that aside... It is hard finding an appointment. We, we hear this from people constantly that they are refreshing these sites, they're doing everything right, and they still can't find the appointment that they're looking for. So I, I do want to kind of um, say that we understand that it is, it is definitely tough. And people are hearing that on Thursday, tomorrow, I should say, everyone in California age 16 and over is going to be eligible. Um, there are some things I recommend for folks. Um, I always ask people to check that they're not already eligible. A lot of those counties started their own kind of patchwork of eligibility ahead of the state and deciding to open up eligibility earlier than the state. So San Francisco, for example, Contra Costa, these counties already will allow you to make your vaccination appointment if you can find one. Um, I also recommend to people that they, they get ready, they get prepped, get familiarized with those sites. The state's my turn site Um, It takes a bit of going through. I really recommend doing like a dry run of that site and seeing all of the boxes you have to check and what the experience is like and visiting your own county's public health website, seeing what the user experience is like there, seeing what pharmacies near you are actually offering the vaccine. So if you do all of this preparatory work, you're going to feel so much more ready when the state actually opens up eligibility tomorrow because you will be one of so many people trying to get that elusive appointment. Yeah, that's such good advice because I just visiting the My Turn site on my own, there are so many boxes and it seems like you, you think you can be doing one, but it's easy to overlook something. And, you know, so I think it's really smart to go in there and make sure you know um, how to operate those sites. Uh, Carly, some people are trying to book appointments based on which vaccine they actually want. Does that does that work, especially now, given uh, what's happening with J&J? This is a question we actually get a lot at KQED. How can I pick and choose my vaccine? And we kind of echo the CDC on this one saying, 
that they recommend that you get the shot that you are offered. Obviously, with Johnson & Johnson pausing it, that's one of three vaccines in the US um, that aren't available to you now. But I think even if folks do have appointments for J&J, it sounds like a lot of the counties are going to be just subbing out those doses for Moderna or Pfizer or working directly with people to rebook. Um, so yeah, that would really be my advice. Take the shot that you are offered. And right now, because of the pause, that is not going to be J&J. There are certain sites like uh, Vaccine Finder that's actually run by the CDC in collaboration with Boston Children's Hospital. And I believe that does actually allow you to filter by vaccine type. So you can say, hey, show me all of the locations near me that are giving out the Pfizer vaccine. Um, because, you know, some people do have certain allergies to certain elements of uh, certain vaccines, and that's why they might want to take a look for a particular vaccine. If that's the case, I would always recommend talking to your own health provider first to get their advice rather than second guessing and trying to do this research by yourself. I want to go to a caller now. Uh, Marie uh, in Oakland, go ahead. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have two questions. So the first one is, how can we hold social media accountable for a lot of the misinformation that is out there? I mean, it's still, you know, I think swaying people tremendously. And while we have all this, you know, great data that I think um, shows that vaccines are safe, can we use um, kind of tutorials to really explain viral biology to the public? Because part of the problem is this misinformation um, is allowed to continue because there's no real facts around the biology and how these vaccines are interacting with our cells and our immune systems. Thank you so much, Maria. Uh, Dr. Mayorga, what do you think about that? Should we do launch educational campaigns that get down to, like, the basics of how viruses work? I think that's a great idea. You know, I personally um, have done a lot of efforts around this. Even just trying to explain things to children is really important. Um, there's some wonderful tutorials on, on social media, on the web. I think we just got to find the right resources for them. Remember, we, we as physicians, we, we spend a lot of time learning about this. The best physicians out there do a wonderful job of explaining it very simply to, to patients. And for me, being able to, to get people motivated, specifically those individuals that are either the patriarch or the matriarch of the family vaccinated. Once those individuals are vaccinated, they could be our advocates for others within their own families and their communities to get vac vaccines. Um, you know, that's something I personally have spoken to our patients about. I've even spoken to my own mother about. She's been the one championing this. Instead of folks calling me my own family members asking me questions, guess what they did after she received her vaccine? They reached out to her. They called her after they saw her posting on Facebook and Instagram. And, and I armed her with all that information so that she could educate our family members. So really, I think there's multiple opportunities to do education via social media, the internet, but also soliciting those that have trust amongst their loved ones and their community. Damien, can you weigh in a little bit on how to combat the negative or the false information that is circulating on social media? Is there anything people can really do about that besides, you know, counter it with truthful information? I mean, as to regulating, you know, the actual behavior of tech companies when it comes to misinformation, whether it be medical or political um, or anything like that, I mean, that's a, you know, massive issue for our society. There have been congressional hearings. And I, I don't think that, I think that's a conversation we're going to be having for years to come as to how to strike the balance between 
the power that, uh, you know, Twitter, for example, exerts over our society and, you know, also free speech and et cetera. But I think, I mean, I would echo what, what Dr. Mayorga said um, with respect to the sort of like trusted parties aspect. On some level, Facebook is going to be a flawed means of getting information. But I've found, uh, you know, to echo what he said, that what often really resonates with people when it comes to the vaccines, when it comes to a lot of things, is hearing from someone they know and already trust. So I often think of it in the context of like, um, you know, am I being a good citizen of like the truth? Am I, um, you know, responding to people who reach out to me with questions about this stuff, even though I have no expertise, whatever, but whatsoever, but like, I am a trusted source for someone. And so just being mindful of that responsibility and trying to um, educate people to the best of my ability in those situations, I feel like that's, that's the means by which I get by. But, you know, for, for some of these social media platforms, yeah, I guess really the only way to, to combat uh, falsehoods is, is with truth. Bill writes, if everyone in the country took the risk of the J&J vaccine, we'd see 300 cases total. Meanwhile, more Americans than that are dying from lack of vaccination every day. Uh, Dr. Mayorga, weigh in on that. What are the risks of stopping the use or pausing the use of J&J while we figure this out versus, you know, the potential side effect of, I'm sorry, the potential... Uh, not side effect, but so implication that it's a quote unquote bad vaccine that would lead to fewer people being vaccinated overall. I think the fact that that caller actually took the time to review the uh, the information and statistics is really important. This is why I keep going back and stressing. We have to put it in context. If we stopped the J&J vaccine or period, if we stopped all vaccines, what's going to happen? We would tick up. We would this pandemic will continue. We know what's going to help this pandemic. end. we know all the public health measures already. We don't have to repeat those. But, but we also know that the utilization of vaccine is really going to curtail this pandemic. We already see the data. We've already seen this. Cases are dropping amongst that have been vaccinated. Even our own healthcare workers, that's been published here in the UC system. We've seen it as well. Cases are dropping amongst our own healthcare workers who are on the front lines. Um, and so I think it's, it's proven benefit that vaccines save lives. We want to see our families again together comfortably. We want to be able to see our grandparents hug, hug those grandchildren. I love seeing my parents hug my, my kids the other day without wearing a mask because they actually had their vaccine. Um, so that's what's going to really make a huge difference. I think a lot of people um, don't understand the differences between the J&J vaccine and the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. Can you kind of lay that out for us? And it, do they all work about the same, you know, side effects put to the side? Do they all work? Are they all as effective in people? Yeah, so it's important to understand that there's there's multiple types of vaccines. Uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is is based off of an adenovirus vector model. It does still have information in it that allows it to our immune system to develop uh, an immune response and the antibodies to fight off coronavirus or COVID nineteen. Now this this adenovirus is is not infectious whatsoever. And there's other vaccines that have been longstanding in use at this point in time with that same functionality. The mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer, Moderna are very uniquely different. 
Those have been studied for, for decades now, although we keep hearing that it's brand new. The reality is they've been studied in Zika virus and rabies, as well as flu. And so what's unique about those vaccines is again, it's, it's in, surrounded by a simple protein. And once you inject it, it stays local to your arm. Uh, your body sees it as foreign. Uh, once, once the spike protein is presented to its, to its normal cells and says, hey, this is not normal. I need to combat this. I need to create antibodies against this. And it eliminates this, all things related to the vaccine. And what you're left with, no matter which vaccine you get, is the antibodies to fight off the real thing once you're faced with it. Louise writes, I recall that very few people who got the Pfizer vaccine responded with an allergic reaction, which provoked anaphylactic shock. They were immediately treated with epinephrine. Could not the J&J vaccine be administered with just a cautionary approach as with the Pfizer vaccine and that side effect? Uh, Dr. Mayorga, do we know if that's a possibility? Well, anaphylactic shock is very different from this, this clotting situation. So it's really important to distinguish the two. Uh, let's keep in mind that that is also something that was a big concern early on, anaphylaxis. We know now in real world use, the, the risk of anaphylaxis from either the Pfizer Moderna has substantially dropped. Now it's five and less than five and one million. And no one uh, has been impacted from anaphylaxis severely. We've been able to combat it if that were to be the case. This is why we have the observation sections of the vaccine clinics available. Um, so, so it's really important to kind of keep that in mind. There's that. Now, as it pertains to the, the clotting situation, again, this is something that's still being evaluated, still looking at closely. There is some, uh, some expectation or assumption that this has to do with an, an immune response of which we have a mechanism to treat if identified quickly uh, but again, this is something that will continue to be evaluated and studied. Uh, important, most importantly, folks need to understand what are those risks, what are those symptoms, so that we can ensure you, you get treatment quickly. We are talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Have you faced challenges making an appointment or accessing a vaccine site? Give us a call. 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. In today for Mina Kim, we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout with Damien Garday, national biotech reporter for Stat News, Carly Severn, senior engagement editor here at KQED News, and Dr. Jose Mayorca, executive director of the University of California Irvine Health Family Health Centers. I want to take a call now uh, from Frank in San Francisco. Go ahead. Yeah, so what 
what I was saying earlier is that, um, you know, as a member of Project Roomkey, having been homely, uh, formerly homeless, um, they put us in these hotels and um, we recently were given, a, you know, the mass uh, vaccination uh, run here at one of the sites and it was only two blocks up from my room. And so, you know, as much as I've heard people having problems getting, you know, uh, these uh, 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 appointments to go get them. I just walked in and just here, have a seat. We'll fill out this paperwork and go. And nowhere did I even ask, is this the Johnson and Johnson? Not because I had heard of a clot, but because I knew it was less efficient. Um, but I reluctantly took it because I was trying to be a good citizen. They said, Hey, just take whatever is available to you right now. Don't be picky. Um, but now that we're finding out that the government knew about these clots, um, I've researched, not, you know, professionally, but just a little bit. And I've asked a lot of the staff at these hotels, and none of them were even offered the J&J. They were all given the higher uh, effic efficacy um, vaccines, you know, the Moderna and Pfizer that don't use those same style uh, vaccines as the AstraZeneca and the J&J. &J. And I firmly believe that this is a classist um, attempt from them to save money on less uh, important people in society, just give them this so they don't spread it. Because now we're finding out, hey, you know what? You can still get COVID on the J&J. It just might not kill you or put you in the hospital, but you'll, you probably will still get it. And um, hey, Frank, thank you so much for your call. I really do appreciate it. I want to address a couple things he said, uh, Damien. Of course, we should make it clear that um, the government has, you know, been upfront about these um, possible side effects and that with all of these vaccines, there is still a possibility that you can get COVID. You just won't get it so severely that you will end up in the hospital and, and possibly die. But I do think that Frank brings up a point that, uh, again, Damien, a lot of people have um, thought about in that it seems like to a lot of people, the J&J &J is seen as a second class vaccine. I mean, how do you, how does the government, how do people who want you to get the vaccine fight that? Yeah, it, it, it's a tough perception to shake. I would say, you know, with the perception that uh, it's less efficacious um, in the clinical trial, you know, we saw the messenger RNA vaccines um, prevented about 90% of cases of symptomatic COVID. And for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it was closer to 75%. Um, I, I would echo what everyone has said that all of them protect against death and against hospitalization, which is very much the point. But I think, you know, in fairness to Johnson & Johnson, it's worth keeping in mind the timing of these trials makes them very difficult to compare to one another. Pfizer and Moderna began their large trials last summer, which if you recall, we were not concerned about, well, concerned, we were concerned, but we didn't have viral variants to worry about really at that time. Johnson & Johnson started its vaccine months later. So if you look at the data, Johnson & Johnson was, their vaccine was contending with some of these viral variants that we've learned are, um, you know, that the vaccines are less effective against, which probably brought down the number. You know, scientists will always say you can't compare trials to trials because they're different patients, different settings. But in this case, it's especially fraught to compare the two because, um, because of this viral variant issue, which made the, uh, the virus they were fighting quite different. But, you know, to, for people in public health, um, 
you know, you don't, you're not dealing with a perfect amount of information for everyone that you're talking to. So the existence of this perception is a real risk. And I think globally, it's also a risk because as I mentioned, the J&J vaccine, like the AstraZeneca vaccine, is cheaper and easier to store than some of these messenger RNA vaccines, which means they're ideal for rural communities in this country and um, a lot of countries in the global south where there may not be the infrastructure for the kind of freezers that you would need for these other vaccines. And it, we really want to avoid the perception that wealthy nations are using up all of the quote unquote good vaccines and then, you know, reserving the uh, quote unquote less good vaccines for those other countries. One, because the vaccines appear to be fine. They, they appear to um, do the job of keeping people out of the hospital, but also because that's just politically dangerous and, and you know, would be societally harmful um, for that perception to really take root. Dr. Mayorga, are you concerned about reaching certain groups of people, such as Latinos, Black people, Asian American Pacific Islander, Islanders who might have less access to, um, as Damien was saying, less access to like the co- uh, Moderna and, and Pfizer vaccines? Um, do you think that this development with J&J will put off a lot of those people from from getting a vaccine? I am definitely concerned about what this is doing, not only to that population, the community that I wholeheartedly take care of here in in Orange County and Santa Ana and Anaheim, the two hardest hit cities of COVID in the county. Um, You know, it's it's really important for us to be able to get in front of this and educate the community. Uh, We've we've struggled to provide them access to testing. Uh, We've responded to that. We've now are faced with making sure to mitigate or stop all that vaccine hesitancy and the, and you know remove all those myths that are out there. I mean, I've I've been asked everything from I could lose my hair to it causes cancer, all these different questions that we know is not true um, at this stage. And I think it's important that we make every effort to educate these communities that have been the hardest hit. Let's not forget that even though the Latino community, the Hispanic community has been, is 39% of the state, 56% of the cases have hit this community here in California and 47% of their deaths. Um, and so really, really important to, again, get the help, not only of trusted partners, but those that are really important to them, which are their, their family members to help us in this education once they've received the vaccine. I want to go to Al in Mountain View on the phone. Go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Oh, perfect. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Uh, this is uh, super interesting. Uh, I recently got the J&J vaccine uh, just a couple of days before it was paused by the federal authorities. And my question is, is there any guidance on whether uh, the people who have gotten the J&J vaccine can take the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine Uh, over a period of uh, some months, uh, especially given that uh, the efficacy of the vaccine uh, typically lasts less than a year or so. And I'm happy to take the answer off the air. Uh, Thank you so much. Dr. Mayorga, can you speak to that? You know, at this stage, we we are not seeing recommendations coming from the CDC uh, that we should get another vaccine on top of this one. I know that there's a lot of studies ongoing at this stage within Moderna and Pfizer in in studying different age groups, uh, as well as consideration of of boosters in the future. 
we we had heard a few weeks ago that there's definitely proof that the, that immunity is being seen up to six months. This is an ongoing uh, situation that we're going to continue to evaluate. This is great science. This is great post-vaccine information and monitoring. All this is really important to understand. But at this stage, we're not uh, hearing or recommending someone to seek out another vaccine after they've gotten uh, the Johnson & Johnson or switching over from Pfizer to Moderna. We, we're not recommending that at this stage. And let's go to um, uh, Susie in Alameda. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm just thinking about the numbers and what people are perceiving as danger. And one in a million sounds like pretty low odds of being um, sick. And I think that the coronavirus has been killing at least one out of every 100,000 people. So I, I don't understand why people are having a hard time with the math. And any protection they can get against the virus should be good protection. If it's one in a million, then just go get the shot. I don't, I don't understand why it's even been pulled from the market because I don't know, um, in efficacy of other drugs, if if one in a million would be and pose any danger whatsoever. So I, I just seems sort of hyped by the media that this drug might cause an illness, you know, blood clots in one out of a million people. Thank you so much, Susie. We want to clarify that it technically hasn't been, the J&J vaccine has not been pulled from the market. It's just on a pause. But Damien, maybe you can explain a, a little bit more about why, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, why the, the government felt that pause was necessary. I think it's very much just an abundance of caution and a commitment to transparency. You know, as Dr. Mayorga mentioned, the key here is to arm doctors, nurses, healthcare workers with the answers to questions that people will have and with, you know, kind of an algorithm for treatment, if one of these really rare side effects does present in front of them, you know, it's, we mentioned earlier the uh, messenger RNA vaccines and the super rare cases of anaphylaxis that we saw. Well, if you get one of those, you have to wait for 15 minutes and the healthcare providers who are there would be prepared to treat you in the event that you had one of those rare cases. And that's because of a situation much like this. Granted, it, it arose before um, those vaccines were widely distributed here in this country. So, you know, there, there wasn't a matter of pausing anything, but this is very much, you know, business as usual um, in a large scale public health rollout. And as the numbers, I think, you know, I'm guilty of this as people, we are sometimes very difficult at like fathoming risk. You know, it, it's definitely more dangerous to drive to your vaccine appointment than it is to get the vaccine, at least based on the data we've seen to this point because of the rate of car crashes. But of course, you know, that, that's, some, we don't really frame it that way. So, um, I think in, in the eyes of, of regulators, it is very much just that this is the way to proceed in public. If they were to do it some other way, if they were to do it behind closed doors, then it would look like a cover up. And that would probably do much more damage to vaccine confidence than the, the current rollout that they're doing it would do. You're listening to Forum from KQED. I'm Katie Orr, in for Mina Kim. We're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Uh, Carly Severn, I want to go back to you. What should people do, do you think, if they cannot get an appointment? Are there any tips, places they can try um, to try and ultimately uh, secure an appointment? This is a question we get a lot because there are like a myriad of places you could get your vaccine shot. There's no one centralized place. Um, So there are 
four avenues that I recommend folks pursue. Number one, talk to your current healthcare provider if you have one, see if they are offering the vaccine. If you don't have health insurance, but you get your medical care through a city or county run provider, you can check in with them too. The second one is your own county. I really recommend going to your county's public health website. Um, if you're in the Bay Area, we have a whole list of this at kqbd.org slash vaccines. So go and look at what they're recommending and how they're offering county residents and also people who work in that county, how they're offering them the shot. The third way I recommend is my turn. You might have heard people talking about my turn. That is the state of California's own website, its own tool that it is kind of centralized and allows you to show to kind of say where you live, what your circumstances are and where you're looking for a, a vaccine location that is going to open up to everyone in California tomorrow. What I would say is that my turn does have a precedent of opening things up early. Uh, 50 plus folks were meant to have their eligibility on April 1st. It actually opened up on my turn on March 31st, so a whole day early. So if you have some time on your hands today, I really recommend just checking out my turn, perhaps even this afternoon, later in the day, because you never know, it really might open up. And the last thing I recommend is take a look at pharmacies around you to see where they are offering the vaccine. And you can use a site like Vaccine Finder or the volunteer run site Vaccinate CA that also shows you all of those locations. Carly, I, I, I want to echo, I want to just chime in there. This is absolutely Please. true regarding my turn. We are seeing people scheduling already over the age of 16 uh, for the, 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 the rollout. So we have, I've physically been monitoring our, our scheduling for that. And we do, I'm excited to share that we see 16 year olds on our schedule to receive their Pfizer vaccine and those in their early twenties. So really exciting. Definitely recommend going to the website and checking early. Dr. Mayorga, what should parents do to protect their children since they won't be able to be vaccinated um, for some time? You know, summer's coming up. Lots of people are planning trips. If, if the parents are vaccinated, how do we keep the kids safe? Well, this is a huge topic, topic for all of our parents, including myself as a dad of three little girls who will not get access to this vaccine for some time. We already know that studies are on the way between six months to 12 years old. We've already heard that there's there's going to be review of uh, it, extending it down to 12 years old for uh, the Moderna vaccine. But really, really important, I stress to everyone, if we want to protect our kids, this is why we call it herd immunity. Those of us who can and will be able to get vaccinated should. That's the best way to protect our kids. I, I stress that to my own family members. We did that. We ensured to protect all the young children in, in our households because we know that's the best way. Uh, that is my strong recommendation to folks uh, more than ever. Now is the time to get vaccinated, especially as the tiers are opening up for everyone over age 16. And what about all of these variants that we keep hearing about? Do we know so far, do the vaccines we have protect us largely from these variants? The variants that are circulating now, the most common one, which is the B117 um, that was originally found in, in Great Britain, you know, that's that's more common throughout the country now here in the U.S. Uh, we know that these vaccines are still effective. I, I don't want people to focus so much on less effective. OK, I think that word less automatically shifts people's minds that it isn't good. Maybe I don't get it anymore. Um the reality is it still works. If I tell you something went from 95% to 85%, I don't, 
I think you would be pretty good with that, right? Remember, the FDA was willing to approve vaccines that had 50% efficacy. All the ones that are out there are better than that. We are, show, we are seeing the studies coming out that they are still good against these variants. And Damien, just to wrap it up here, when do you think we'll get a, a ruling from this advisory committee? Should we get expect something today in terms of how long we might have to keep this pause on the J&J vaccine in place for? We should get, yeah, news from them today as to what their advice to the CDC is. And I would expect federal regulators to to act pretty quickly. Um, Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the FDA, said yesterday that she expected this pause to be a matter of days. Um, So it's probably likely that everybody wants to get kind of their ducks in a row as to what's going on here, what do we need to know, what should we tell people? And once regulators are comfortable with, um, you know, how to accurately message around it, I would assume that they would recommend unpausing, I guess would be the way to phrase it, um, potentially before the end of the week. And then do you expect the Biden administration would act pretty quickly to start rolling those vaccines out again, assuming that they say we can? I would, yeah. So, you know, J&J has only just begun ramping up their supply. They received their emergency use authorization fairly recently and and have had some stumbles in manufacturing, which I think, you know, everybody noticed with a, a facility in Baltimore. So, I guess the good news is that there isn't a halt to production. So even if there's a pause to administration, as soon as uh, regulators deem it safe to to unpause it, um, they'll be able to continue to increase the supply to states around the country. And then, you know, this hasn't been terribly derailing because it seems that most states had adequate supply of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to keep appointments that people had to receive the J&J vaccine. So this may end up being really just a hiccup in the uh, national vaccine campaign. We've been talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout with Damien Garday, the national biotech reporter for Stat News, Carly Severn, senior engagement editor with KQED News, and Dr. Jose Mallorca, executive director of the University of California Irvine Health Family Center. You can visit kqed.org slash vaccines and the forum page for this show for more information on how to vet book your vaccine appointment. I'm Katie Orr, in for Mina Kim. Have a great day. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.